I'm going to uh, review the list, long list of announcements. Don't forget to set your clocks ahead an hour on Saturday night because we begin daylight savings time. That way you will get to church on time. Also, on Sunday morning, we're going to change up this thing with the uh, Light and Action Ministry. We're going to include them at the beginning, near the beginning of the service, following communion and before, right before I speak. And that way that won't interfere with the events after church where uh, we have to start uh, setting up tables and doing a lot of other things for the uh, Chafer Conference, which begins on uh, Monday, March the 13th. Now, we're having a problem this year because I understand, I've been told that not enough volunteers have signed up. And I don't know if that's because the conference is falling on the week of spring break this year. Many times in the past, I've had it the week before or the week after. I don't know if that affects anything. But um, we do need volunteers still. We need help in a number of areas. There's sign-up sheets out in the in the fellowship hall. We need some ladies to help Roberta and um, Ann Wright in the kitchen to get everything cleaned up. This will be Sunday after church. We need some ladies also to help Betty Munson in t- terms of cleaning up the, the uh, restrooms. We need uh, folks to help uh, Mark Friedrich. I think Saturday morning around 8.30, if any men are available, uh, we're not going to have our men's prayer breakfast this Saturday. I don't think we ever have right before the conference, and somehow that that um, I had a mental glitch on that. But we're not having the conference. We're going to have our deacons meeting at 8 o'clock instead of at at, uh, the usual 9. We'll wrap up early and be able to help uh, with the ladies set up tables and things of that nature. Also, um, we've got, uh, let me see, I've already covered most of that. No Bible class next Thursday night. So make a note of that, especially those of you who are live streamers. Uh, no Bible class next Thursday night because of the Chafer Conference that will be on Monday, uh, Tuesday, and Wednesday. There's going to be a special event Monday night. I'm not going to tell anybody what it is, but you need to be here, period. That's a imperative mood verb. Um, I guess that's, that's it for the, for the announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We all know that we are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, but sometimes uh, we sin. Maybe we sin more frequently than we admit. 
but we need to admit our sins to God, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that restores us to a walk by the Spirit. Uh, If we're walking by the flesh, nothing that we do uh, counts for eternity. Everything is spoiled by sin and is corrupted by sin. So we always have a few mo- a few moments of silent prayer first so people can make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to look at your word, to explore what the scripture says, to think, probe, Uh, more deeply into the implications of Scripture that we may think about how we present the gospel, think about how we communicate uh, Scripture to other people, that we may come to be more uh, efficient and more effective in our side of the gospel presentation. We know that God the Holy Spirit is the uh, agent of evangelism, ultimately, But nevertheless, that does not absolve us of the responsibility to be clear, to be organized, and to be as effective as we can in communicating the gospel. Father, we pray that you'd help us to focus, concentrate as we go through our material this evening. In Christ's name, amen. All right, it has been a month since we met on Thursday night because I was gone to Kiev and that took out three Uh, Thursday night, so it's been a month, and unfortunately, the coming schedule is going to be a little bit less consistent, more consistent than the last month, but less consistent than every week, because of course, next week's the Chafer Conference. There will not be class uh, on that Thursday night, but of course, we'll start again the next week. So that kind of chops up the topic a little bit, but nevertheless, Uh, I think we'll do pretty well. What I wanted to do tonight in the first 10 or 12 slides was just review the high points of what I covered last week because we need to understand the context in relation to a very important verse, which is 1 Peter 3.15, which introduces this important word, apologia, which is the word for making a defense, giving an answer, giving a reasoned or rational uh, answer for the hope that is in us. As I was studying the other morning, kind of a funny thing happened. I wish I was smart enough to think this through ahead of time, and I would have set it up a little differently, but I, uh, I was reading through various scriptures related to how we are to communicate and interact with people, and that's always difficult because people are not always the easiest to interact with. Sometimes they anger us. Sometimes they um, frustrate us. Uh, all kinds of things happen when we're trying to deal with people, and especially people who don't agree with us and may become antagonistic to what we believe. And as I was reading through various verses in the pastoral epistles related to apologetics and communicating the gospel, I ran across three verses in First Timothy, or excuse me, Second Timothy. And as I read them, I thought, you know, my group of pastors that meet on Friday morning should should be reminded. These are good verses. We all need to be reminded that this is in the Scripture. And so I just copied and pasted them into an email and then sent it out, and I just had a blind copy on all the recipients of the email and didn't think anything about it. 
Well, it wasn't long before I got an email from someone who said, well, was that for me? Did you mean that for me? And then I got another one. Did, did, did I do something wrong? Uh, and then I got another one said, has somebody been complaining? <laughs> and, and I realized that, that before long, probably over a third of the people who received the email thought that some, for some reason I was just sending these verses to them, and they either have a very sensitive conscience or they have a guilty conscience. But I will read them to you and re- relate this to wh- what, how we as believers should be communicating the gospel to other people. In 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Now you can figure, that includes those people you have trouble being gentle with, okay? Being gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. And that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So there were a number of uh, pastors who thought that, well, somebody's complaining about something I'm doing, that I'm not as patient with somebody who's in opposition. So that was interesting to see that <coughs> that response. But that is to govern uh, our response to the gospel, as we see in First Peter chapter chapter three, verse fifteen, we are to um, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. In other words, it's the same idea as humility. It is authority orientation toward God, submitting to Him. It's not about me. It's not an argument where I'm going to try to win the argument. It's not about being smarter than the other person. We've all gotten caught into those kinds of traps. So let's go back and look at the context. Tonight what we're going to do is really focus in on uh, giving an answer and start trying to understand what this means to give an answer uh, to those who ask us. 1 Peter 3, 13 and through 17, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And I wanted to point out a couple of words, like the word always, which doesn't mean some of the time. That means we need to be trained and we need to be ready to be able to give a defense. Now, the cults do a great job of this. If you've ever gone to your front door and seen a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses or a couple of Mormons or whomever else, they are well-trained. They have Sunday school classes. They go through all kinds of drills. They role-play. They are trained. Most Christians can't think their way out of a wet paper bag, and I'm talking about the ones who think they can. 
you know, the ones who go to Bible churches that are taught something, I'm not talking about 98% of them that have never been taught anything. But it, it's hard to do that because most of the time when we need to make that kind of an explanation, it's not when it's convenient. How many people have had situations like that occur when it's convenient? It's not when it's on our mind and we just read those notes yesterday. It's not when it's the, uh, the easiest set of circumstances. Uh, so we need to be ready. That calls for a special kind of, of training. If you're in the military and you're, you are well trained in your job, you're trained to do it without thinking about it because when the situation occurs and everything's blowing up around you and the bullets are flying, you've got to be able to do your, your job without thinking about, now, wait a minute, how does this part go here? How do I turn this on here? What do I set this, uh, instrument at here, you do it. So we don't do a good job in most churches of training believers to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Most churches, unfortunately, don't even do a good job of helping people understand the gospel. That's the first step is you have to clearly understand what the gospel is and what it isn't. So anyway, we're always to be ready to give an answer to everyone. Those universal terms are very important to notice. and it's, But it's in the context of suffering for righteousness' sake, being involved in hostility, adversity, persecution, maybe gossip and slander, sins of the tongue that are directed our way, and we don't deserve it. We are have done everything the way we should, and yet we become the target of character assassination. We become the targets of uh, hostile words. We become the targets of, of uh, slander, back, all kinds of things. The main idea that Paul says here, in, I mean Peter in this section, is though severe persecution occurs and will occur to Christians through time. We've lived in a bubble in this country and I think that bubble is disappearing. That throws severe persecution occurs, it's not the norm. The norm is that people don't attack you because you do good. But in this situation that Peter's talking about, it's a situation where people are doing good and you're still being reviled for it. So he starts off saying, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of good? That's the point. This is unusual that you're still attacked even if you're doing the right thing. Now, we are seeing more and more of this in this country. In fact, as I pointed out at the beginning, one of the key words here is that word evildoers, and I think that when President George W. Bush used that term in relation to the um, 9-11 terrorists, he just really angered and set off all of the, uh, the postmodern relativists. And that's pretty much most of the liberal wing of the Democrat Party, which is most of the Democrat Party, because they've given up the idea that there's right and wrong, absolute good and absolute evil, and that these terrorists had bought into absolute evil. And so by using that term, what he was doing was exposing his presuppositions about life, that at the core of his being, he believed there was absolute right and absolute wrong, and that those who committed these acts were evil. And that, in and of itself, is an extremely 
hostile statement to somebody who is a postmodern relativist. It goes against everything that they uh, that they believe in. And so here he's doing a good thing, and yet there were those who opposed him greatly. We're seeing more and more of that today. Verse 14 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And then there's a quote uh, from the Old Testament, Don't be afraid of their threats and be troubled. In other words, put your focus on the Lord. Understand we're living in the devil's world, and we're going to face these kinds of hostile actions. We're going to suffer, pasco, same word used of Jesus, uh, suffering on the cross, which is always the pattern, always the the paradigm for Peter. How do we handle adversity, suffering? We always look to the cross. In contrast, we are blessed, we are privileged to serve the Lord. That's the context for 1 Peter 3.15, to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you with, with meekness and fear. This is part of sanctification. We sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. We set him apart. This is important. We make it a priority to do so. But the verse doesn't end there. It goes on. In order to have a good conscience, we are to be able to clearly articulate why we believe what we believe to those who ask in any circumstance or situation, and that is to have a good conscience. And the result is, and I'm going to get into the whole issue of conscience here eventually. It's interesting how Peter uses the term in Peter, but... I'm not going to just go in that direction just yet. Um, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct, remember that's been a theme all through Peter, is our conduct, how we live our lives. Um, that ultimately those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, uh, for it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, most Christians I know would say, no, it's better not to suffer. I know that probably doesn't apply to anybody here, but that's what most people think. It's just better not to suffer. We want comfort. We want everything to go smoothly. But we live in the devil's world. We're on a mission for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that puts a target on our back in terms of the angelic conflict, and we can't escape that. So that brings us to this passage. I put the two verses together, verses 15 and 16. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ might be ashamed. Now, I want to take probably three, maybe four classes to go through something I've never taught through before uh, in terms of a class like this, uh, uh, in terms of Bible class, and that's this issue of apologetics and to understand what this is all about and why this is important. So we're going to break it down and look at uh, several key questions. Some of the, This is just in terms of an introduction. This is an introduction to an introduction. 
First of all, we need to define the term. There's a lot of misunderstandings about the term apologetics. What is apologetics? Why is it important? Why, second question, why should we learn about apologetics? There are some people I've heard make statements like, well, the Bible doesn't have any apologetics in it. Really? Hmm. If you understood the worldview context into which Genesis 1 was written, you would realize that almost every phrase is a slap in the face to a polytheistic pagan. It is not only apologetic, a defense for Christianity, it is polemic. It is a hot, hotly debated uh, structure. And what everything Moses writes in chapter 1 is uh, distasteful to a polytheistic pagan who believes that something, the gods or matter or something, lasted for eternity, pre-existed, whatever the current state is, not unlike modern evolutionists. So it is, uh, it's almost combative in what it is saying. It's picking a fight with pagans. But most people are so ignorant of the pagan views at that time that they don't read it that way. That's why it's important to understand the time in which the scriptures are written. So from Genesis 1, you have, if you properly understand what apologetics means, you have this kind of an orientation. Of course, that flies in the face for for what I understand is the uh, <clears throat> one of the uh, pseudo-values that dominate millennials, and that is any kind of criticism of what anybody else says or anybody else believes is by its very nature wrong and therefore sinful. There are millennials from the time they're, from those who are 45 and under who bought into this idea that criticizing somebody else else's belief system is wrong. They have they should believe what they believe, and to respect it, you should validate it. And and that's what we see in the hypersensitivity of our culture is, is we're expected to validate and approve everybody else's sinful lifestyle. That's what the homosexuals and the transgenders and everybody else want. They don't want simply the freedom to do whatever it is they're going to do. They want the approbation of everyone. They, to criticize them is is wrong. That's sinful. So so what happens here, and this, this is part of apologetics, is if you're going to communicate the gospel and scripture to someone who at the core of their being has a sense that sin means you can't be critical of somebody else and God is critical of other religions, they're going to conclude that therefore God must be sinful because he criticizes and demeans other religions. Think about the episode with Elijah on Mount Carmel. He's sarcastic, he's demeaning, he has no respect whatsoever for the priests of of Baal and the Asher. In fact, when it's all over with, he's going to execute them all. You know, that's just just completely uh, insensitive. He has no respect for them, so so he's got to be wrong. So see, this is what happens when we try to communicate 
in a pagan environment is that just as we bring certain ideas and values to the table in our communication, they also bring certain ideas and values and uh, to the table, and we have to somehow figure out how to communicate. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, what is apologetics? Then why should we learn about apologetics? Third, why do some people object to apologetics? And <clears throat> that in and of itself is an interesting study. Fourth, the, the claim that the Bible doesn't use apologetics, therefore why should we? Now, the Bible doesn't give a, a rationale for the existence of God, but that's not the same thing as apologetics. The Bible starts with the presupposition that God exists, but that that doesn't mean that it's not using apologetics, if you understand it. Fifth, what's the difference between apologetics and Christian evidences? A lot of folks think that those two terms are synonymous, but they're not. And some people even get the idea that if you have a biblical apologetic, you don't use Christian evidences. And we need to talk about that because that sort of, a lot of people get that idea. Six, on what basis then do we defend or support or argue that Christianity is the one and only truth? See, if you're going to say the Bible is true, then somebody's going to say, well, prove it. How do you know it's true? That's a legitimate question. That doesn't mean that they're they're wrong in asking the question, but that that question needs to be addressed and answered, and it's not an easy one. It's not something you're going to give a short little pithy answer to. You're going to have to stop and think about that. <clears throat> so let's just look at the first question. What is apologetics? Somebody once told me that <clears throat> a lot of disagreement and a lot of confusion can be cleared up if you simply define your terms clearly and precisely. That one reason a lot of people get into confusion, and this is one of them, is because they have a wrong understanding of what the word basically means. So I'm going to reference the Oxford English Dictionary. If you're British, that's your ultimate authority. If you're American, then you go to Webster's Third International. But I'll start with the OED, and there's three, defini three definitions listed in the OED, but I'm only going to mention the first one and the third one. Those are the only ones relevant to what we're talking about. The first meaning is a regretful acknowledgement of an offense or a failure. The first meaning listed in a dictionary is the most common usage. <clears throat> so this is what most people default to when they hear the word apology. They think that this is some sort of an, a, a regretful admission of having uh, done something to offend somebody else or committed some failure. But the word has a much older meaning, and the third uses, which of the three, this is the one that's used less commonly in everyday discourse, and that is that it refers to a justification or a defense. Classically, you had a work written by Socrates called his Apologia, his defense, and it was a legal term that was used in uh, ancient Greece to describe somebody's legal defense in a courtroom, their uh, <clears throat> their response to an accusation. 
and that is close to the way in which we use it. Most common usage, people uh, think of the first meaning, but we're not apologizing for the Bible. We're not saying, oh, I'm sorry, the Bible says things that offend you. That's too bad. No, we are going to take a strong stand for the truth of the Scripture. It is this third meaning that is the one that most closely relates to the biblical teaching on apologetics, how to give an organized explanation for why you believe what you believe. So that's looking at this first question, what is apologetics? It comes from the Greek word apologia, and that's the noun form. There's also the verb form, and the two together are used about 17 times in the New Testament. The noun refers to a speech of defense, and it's usually translated as defense or reply. These definitions come out of the Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich uh, Greek-English dictionary. It's a speech of defense, usually a formal presentation in a courtroom where some person is accused of something, and so they're giving a reply. Second meaning that's listed is the, the act of making a defense as in court or some individual who's eager, uh, refers to their eager activity to defend themselves in the face of a charge. Um, Third meaning that they list is the claim of extenuating circumstances or making an excuse. That's a limited meaning. I don't really find that in the New Testament. Uh, Arndt Gingrich has more than one occasion. They slip a meaning in there that I don't think is reflected Uh, in the text. So 17 times we see that the noun or verb appears in the New Testament with either the sense of vindication, to vindicate someone's actions or belief, or the sense of defense. That's according to Ken Boa, who's got about a 600-page-plus book uh, called Faith Has Its Reasons. And what's interesting is from the time I first began to read in the area of apologetics back in the 70s to now, the, it's just the, the number of books has exploded, and it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating area of study, but it's not for everyone in terms of the more technical sense of the term because it does get into a lot of more technical Issues, which is one objection that people have. I said, well, it just seems so technical. It seems like when you read in apologetics, people are thinking in terms of extremely detailed philosophical arguments. And yes, that's true, because since the early second century when Christianity had broken out of the uh, Levant area and was at, and was making inroads into Greek culture and Roman culture, the avant-garde of the uh, Greco-Roman intelligentsia was attacking the ideas of Christianity. And so there was a need to articulate what Christians truly believed. A lot of times it was based on fake news. Uh, today's no different. Fake news is always dominated. And uh, so people uh, needed to have an understanding of what the Scripture taught and why. Uh, It's used one time of a legal defense that isn't related to a spiritual situation, and that is in Acts chapter 19, verse 33. 
There's the verse, and they drew Alexander, Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. I always thought that, that that's not a good situation to be in, where you're in a small crowd surrounded by a larger crowd that's hostile, and everybody else is shoving you forward to be the spokesperson. That's the situation there. And we see uh, the next sentence, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. Now, the situation here is that uh, this is in Ephesus. Paul has been preaching the gospel in Ephesus. People have been responding. There's been a huge number of people turning away from the idolatrous worship of Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians, who was also referred to as the many-breasted goddess because this was she was a great fertility symbol. And one Demetrius is mentioned in the text, who's the leader of the uh, silversmith uh, <clears throat> guild, and he gets everybody together, gets them all riled up to riot uh, in the city to throw out these Christians who are threatening their business because the silversmiths made these little idols of Diana that people would buy, the tourists would come, worship in the temple, and this was big business for them, and so money was at the heart of this. And with the Christians coming in and saying there there are no other gods, there's only one God, their business was being uh, being threatened. And this is when they went to the uh, theater in Ephesus, and there there's this uh, this riot basically that's taking place. But the Jews are there as well, and the Jews are also monotheists, and the Jews don't believe in many gods, so uh, they're being attacked by the polytheists as well, and so. They're, they have to defend themselves as monotheists, and so they get this Alexander to uh, be their spokesperson, and they're going to push him out in front so that he can defend their monotheistic views, and that's the context. So it says that he <clears throat> wanted to make his defense or present a, a rational argument for their position against uh, polytheism. The word is also used in Deuteronomy, excuse me, in Acts uh, 24, uh, verse 10. Then Paul, uh, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, this is talking about about Felix, who was the uh, Roman uh, governor in Judea at this time. Paul had been arrested, uh, so he now is having a formal hearing, so it's a courtroom situation. And Paul answered and said, Inasmuch as you know, as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. That's the word apologia there. So he is presenting a formal legal defense in a hearing situation for why he believes. This is used several times in Acts for Paul. We'll look at that in, in more detail because we have to understand how the word is used in Scripture and therefore have a better understanding uh, of what it means. One of the comments that is made also related to this word is that its general use at the time of Scripture is to simply be able to clearly, rationally articulate what you believe and why you believe it to someone. We would say that's just part of witnessing. But you and I both know that when we're communicating the gospel to people, that they ask questions. 
Now, some people just don't like to get involved in conversations that may take 10, 15, 20 years to resolve and that may call upon them to to have an in-depth knowledge of Scripture, so they just quote another Bible verse. I call that shooting your gospel gun at somebody or doing a gospel drive-by. And that's not what Paul did. That's not what anybody in the New Testament did. That's not what we're commanded to do. So... But there is a difference between the way the words were used in the, in the Scripture time and their more technical sense today. The New Testament, I have a few typos in this quote, the New Testament then does not use the words apologia or apologeomai, which is the verb form, in the technical sense of the modern word apologetics. This is the idea of offering a reasoned defense of faith but this, is, this basic core idea is clear in three passages, Philippians 1, 7, and 16, which relates to the Apostle Paul, and 1 Peter three fifteen. So there is a sense that's there in the, uh, in the New Testament, and then there's a more technical sense that develops. In the late... Uh, 1700s is the first time we have the word used as a distinct branch of theology. I think it should be an additional branch to those that are, for example, those of you familiar with Chafer's Systematic Theology, he covers just about everything, except Arnold Fruchtenbaum came along and said, there's another branch that's been ignored, and that's Israelology, and I think he's true there. That is an understanding of the role of Israel within Scripture, and I think apologetics uh, is another area that should be taught within systematic theology, it pulls together a lot of important things. To be able to present the gospel to people, we have to have an understanding of anthropology. And to understand anthropology, that is the makeup of man and his abilities to understand truth, you have to understand homardiology and the impact of sin on people's uh, ability to reason and to think. We also have to understand the role of God, the Holy Spirit, in the process. All of these things come together. But just as a final note here before we move on to its more technical definition, apologetics has nothing to do with saying that you're sorry for something. It is a rational, legal defense of one's position or one's belief system. Robert Raymond, in his book, The Justification of Knowledge, I want you to notice that title, The Justification of Knowledge. Now, some of these ideas are pretty basic to most of us. If you've been a Christian for most of your life, you're thinking, well, I I just don't understand why I have to justify knowledge. Well, if you've grown up in a postmodern world or a world that is uh, completely uh, inundated with with relativism and uncertainty, uh, they don't believe that you can really know anything for sure. That's the position of agnostics. And I don't know, I've had the opportunity to witness to a number of agnostics. And I always like trying to use a little bit of strategy saying, well, if you're a true agnostic, that means you don't believe you can know anything for sure. Do you know that for sure? 
And usually they'll have to respond, well, I, I think so. Well, okay, well, if we know that for sure, there's at least one thing we know for sure. Let's just, to be consistent, let's maybe there's something else we can know for sure. So let's start knocking down these uh, rationalizations right off the bat. <clears throat> so Robert Raymond says that, um, well, wait a minute. The term it says, it says this, the, the apologetic, Christian apologetics is the discipline wherein an intelligent effort is made to defend before an unbelieving world the truth claim of the Christian faith, specifically its claim of exclusive true knowledge of the living and true God in a manner consistent with the teaching of Scripture. So what we see at the very beginning is this, this idea that it has something to do with with thinking. You have to think through what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. That means it really needs to be part of your your mental makeup. It's it's a defense. Now, some people don't like the word defense, and it's not the sense that we're being put on defense. It is, it's the legal sense that we are articulating and answering the question why we believe what we believe. And so that's why it's a defense. It's not because we are being defeated or we're taking a position of being victims or something like that. Uh, You all have been around and listened to me teach about words long enough to know that words have a lot of different meanings and nuances. And in this context, it is simply being able to respond to the legitimate question of why do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? And I mentioned this the last time in the last Bible class that that back in 1970 when I first went to college and I was in ROTC and on an ROTC scholarship, that that's when I first met the head of the military science department at at Stephen F. Austin, Jim Callahan. And sometime during that, that fall was the first time I gave him a little booklet called War, Moral, or Immoral uh, to read. And uh, some of you remember when that that book came out. And so we had our first conversation about the gospel. And it was 30 years later before he trusted in Christ. And by that time, the Lord got his attention by giving him lymphoma. And I found out he was uh, MD Anderson here. And I went down and I sat down in his uh, hospital room. And he asked me that question. He said, Robbie, tell me, why do you believe what you believe? Exact words. So what are you going to say? You could say because the Bible tells me so, and that's an accurate answer, but the response from somebody who has a brain and has been using it and has been totally uh, brainwashed by a pagan worldview is, well, how do you know that? What What's the evidence? I don't want to be guilty of just having to put my brain into neutral to believe something apart from uh, rational evidence, logical evidence, and the Bible doesn't expect us to put our brains into neutral at all. So we have to think about these things and how we're going to articulate it. If you're going to give an answer for the hope that is in you, what, aside from thought, what else is evident in that phraseology? You have to understand how to communicate. If you're going to give an answer, you're going to communicate. So you have to understand communication. At the very core of communication, you have two things. You have words and you have logic. 
And if we look at the scripture, we go to passages like John 1, 1, in the beginning was the logos. Logos is the Greek word that is usually translated word, which has to do with communication and revelation. But logos is also the root of our English word logic. Because communication, the structure of any sentence, has logic embedded within it. So that you can't make a statement about anything without relying upon logic and consistency for that communication to make sense. So the more you think about these things, it starts getting a little more detailed and people's brain cells start to fry a little bit and start to smoke because we're normally uh, only used to thinking like this if we're in a <clears throat> in a freshman uh, some kind of freshman philosophy class and the professor is trying to destroy our Christian Christian belief. So it's an intelligent effort to defend before an unbelieving world the truth claim of the Christian faith. Christian faith claims to be the only truth. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the resu- resurrection of the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's a truth claim. Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is a truth claim. Jesus says, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. That is a truth claim. So we have to be able to articulate why we believe that. Then he goes on to say, specifically, apologetics relates to the claim of exclusive true knowledge of the living and true God in a manner consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Now, that's a really important statement because at the heart of a lot of the debates that occur within apologetics is the idea that you can do a right thing, give an answer for the hope that is in you, a wrong way, a way that is consistent with the pagan assumptions of the person you're talking to, but it's not consistent with the Trinitarian's assumptions of of the Bible. And a lot of people uh, sacrifice and compromise the truth of what they're saying by the way in which they say it. And we'll get into some of that because that's that's at the heart of a lot of this. So it's got to be consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Now, one of the things that's valuable about, valuable about this as you think through it is you'll learn a lot about how to communicate in other areas. A, a lot of these principles will help you clarify and articulate your political beliefs, your understanding of history, your understanding of other things, because it helps us to think through how to communicate, especially to somebody who doesn't agree with us, and how to avoid certain logical and presuppositional uh, traps. On the Dean Bible Ministries website, where the lesson for last time is listed, Barr posted two uh, two things that Charlie Clough wrote that for those who want to explore this a little more, you should probably read both of them. The first thing that he wrote was a, uh, he called it his framework pamphlet one. There's a lot of people who are familiar with Charlie's framework pamphlets, and they all start with FP2, right? Where's one? Well, this is one. It's called giving an answer, and he's never revised it. He hasn't taught it since he was at Texas Tech or Lubbock. 
uh, back in the back in the late seventies, and I was very grateful for it because what he does is he looks at three different approaches to apologetics and shows how you evaluate them. And I it came out right before I took a course called Apologetic Systems. Uh, when I was at Dallas Seminary, and actually there's about, depending on who you read, there's as many as five or seven different systems. And so Charlie did a did a good job uh, introducing uh, the topic, and I always appreciated all of Charlie's stuff because not only did I read what Charlie wrote, but I would buy every book in his bibliography and then read every book in his bibliography. And uh, and that was just mostly during the time I was I was in seminary because that's what you have to do to really learn something is not just reading somebody's secondary um, regurgitation of the material but go read the primary primary sources. In his uh, <coughs> revision and updating of that, he wrote an article for a uh, theological work that was edited by Mal Couch, who's now with the Lord, but Mal was the president and founder of Tyndale Seminary, and Mal was the editor, but Mal didn't understand apologetics. And Mal, Mal thought that, that Charlie should really be saying something that was just the opposite of what Charlie was saying. And when Charlie wrote this article that's a chapter in that book, Mal, no editor should ever do this, basically rewrote it so that if you read the article in the publication in which it came out, it's basically meaningless, and it's it's trying to argue the opposite from what Charlie thought was true. And so this is the original article. I've also got that posted on the website so people can look at that. In there he says, Apologia describes a carefully reasoned defense in response to a line of questioning or wrongful accusation by recognized authorities. For example, you go into court, you've got recognized authorities, and they are accusing a person of something. And so an apologia is a carefully reasoned defense. That's what a defense attorney would present in a courtroom. He goes on to say the word may also refer to a more informal defense outside of the courtroom against personal questioning or accusation. Somebody may say, how can, can you believe that Christian stuff? I have a friend of mine that I was in college with. In fact, he was very, very close to uh, uh, Colonel Callahan when we were in ROTC. He was a year ahead of me. He was also a scholarship student, and he was really skeptical of of Christianity and and he would he and Callahan would get together and they would kind of feed off of each other in this cynical uh, anti-religious stuff and and I remember going back in around 1981 or 82 I'd been out of seminary about a year and I remember going to a um, uh, little breakfast place in Nacogdoches we were up there for a reunion and sitting around breakfast, and we had this long two to three hour conversation where he just kept trying to shoot down why why are you going to seminary? What a waste of time that this must be this is what you know why do you believe this religious stuff and so I kind of walked my way th- through through various things, and of course he didn't want to listen to any of it, but see, we never know how God is using this stuff, so you fast forward thirty years to when um, this was after uh, Colonel Callahan died, and his son had been very close to this other guy as well. But his son was a believer, and he called me up one day, and we're talking. He said, you know, Robbie, we've got to get him saved. We've got to make sure he's going to go to heaven. And I said, okay. 
So I called up a buddy of mine that uh, was part of a hunting club because this, this, this other guy uh, was big hunter, big gun, gun nut. And I called this other guy up who's a believer and evangelist and, and uh, grew, actually had been one of my campers at Penile back years ago. And I told him the situation. He said, well, well he said, Let, let's go hunt and pick a date. We'll go up to the camp and we'll go hunting and we'll see what, what transpires. So the first night we were there, and this other guy had invited a Baptist pastor along at the same time. We talked about spiritual things around the table and around dinner, and it was kind of interesting. And as we went to our bunks, uh, this buddy of mine and I were in the same room. You turn out the lights, and you're still kind of talking before you go to sleep. And he said, he said, you know, Robbie, he said, uh, I came to the Lord as a result of reading C.S. Lewis's book, mere Christianity. I said, really? How did that happen? He said, well, back when I was a company commander with the 101st Airborne, that's back when I saw him in 81 or 82. When I was a company commander with 82nd Airborne, I had a chaplain that gave me a copy and said, said, you need to read this. Gave me a copy of Mere Christianity, and as far as I can put things together, that was probably within a year, maybe within six months of the conversation we had had in Nacogdoches. And and he went on to say, every night I would read a little bit of that, and here was this guy who was extremely intelligent, had uh, <clears throat> Oxford educated, and was a classic cynic and skeptic of religion, and every night I would just read, all I could read was two or three pages, and he had me so confused now that, that, that I realized that all of the objections I had to Christianity amounted to nothing. And, and before I finished reading the book, I trusted the Lord as my Savior. Isn't that a neat story? We never know how what we're doing fits within that. But see, there's a circumstance where both C.S. Lewis came to the Lord through apologetics, and that's what brought this friend to the Lord was through apologetics. So there's some people who think, well, apologetics is useless. Well, you're not thinking. So that's the informal use of apologetics, as well as the formal with reading uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And then Charlie writes, the intent of an apologia is to win over the person being addressed to change his mind about what is true. But see, when you make that statement, when you say change of mind, immediately you're talking about thought. You're talking about beliefs. And you're talking about it, the assumption there that something is true as opposed to false. That is a loaded term. Sometimes you may spend a lot of time just talking about what truth is to convince somebody that there is something is truth because that's how brainwashed they are today. And if you don't think a lot of people in this culture are brainwashed, just read the news about how a lot of people are reacting to fake news about this president. There are people with some really crazy ideas that have no basis in fact. And that's what happens when you're brainwashed with paganism. So here's my thought. From all of this, we see that the definition of apologetics involves the knowledge of facts and determination of truth. Well, what is a fact? 
You think that you know what a fact is, but there are people out there who will debate you on what you mean by the word fact. There are people, uh, I've read of one Harvard professor who believes that the resurrection is a fact, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. Anything can happen in a, in a universe of pure contingency. So just because Jesus rose bodily from the dead doesn't mean he's God or anything else. That's out there. So we, to, in apologetics, you have to think about what is a fact, what is truth. Over the century, the meaning of knowledge, and over the centuries, I should say, the meaning of knowledge, facts, and truth have been intensely debated by theologians as well as philosophers. Underlying this discussion are assumptions about a specific view of reality. If you don't think that's an issue, just you're not paying attention to what's going on in this country. Half this country believes in one view of reality, and the other half believes in a totally opposite view of reality, and the division between them is growing further and further apart, and there's more and more hostility. I would not be surprised if we have... Uh, a shooting civil war in places b- before the next 10 years are over with. There is such hostility. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, the last time I have seen this kind of belligerence in writing in newspapers was stuff I read back uh, that was written back in the 1850s in relation to the abolition issue and slavery leading up to the, up to the Civil War. It's irrational, and when people are wedded to their irrationality, it's not long before their emotions get out of control. Okay, let's go on. Underlying this discussion are assumptions about a specific view of reality. How one person understands reality is directly related to his worldview. But most people don't even know what their worldview is. They've never taken it out and looked at it. They don't even know they have one. They never heard the word before. But they have one, and it controls how they're interpreting the data. This includes an understanding of the ultimate nature of reality. You remember my iceberg chart that I've used in the past, the ultimate nature of reality, how we know anything, and how we validate or justify the knowledge. That's why Raymond's book was called The Justification of Knowledge. How that knowledge affects our understanding of truth, which in turn impacts ethics and the determination of right and wrong, or even if right and wrong exists. All that's in bed. Now, you know, if you're talking to somebody who grew up in a Judeo-Christian environment, a Judeo-Christian worldview, it's not going to be that difficult to explain the gospel to them because when they think of God, they mean the same thing that you. That's what they, they picked up as they were growing up. But if you're talking to somebody who's an aboriginal in, in Africa or Australia and they've never heard anything about God other than a plethora of deities in their polytheism, then when you say God, they're going to hear something that you don't intend to communicate. So it's it's very important uh, to go through these things. That's why some people have gone places as missionaries, and they have spent their entire life and maybe seen one convert. It's difficult. When I was in seminary, there was a man, <clears throat> I knew his daughter because she had been a student at Dallas Bible College and was friends with uh, some mutual friends, but this guy came back, I and uh, I'm not going to mention his name, I, I, he j- just came to me, but he had spent his life, 
He had married an Indian woman. He had spent his life in India. And I was told that he lived in a room that's about uh, half the size of the uh, DBM office, either the one up here or the office back there. And that was everything that they lived. And he had labored in, among the poorest of the poor in India for 20 years since he had graduated from Dallas Seminary. And he had led maybe three or four people to the Lord. Now, if your theology is not big enough to think that is much more significant than somebody who's got tens of thousands of people listening to, to them on the Internet, then you have a pretty pathetic theology. Because that's what it takes sometimes to penetrate the darkness, the spiritual darkness in some of these cultures. Uh, the term apolog- apologist came into vogue in the early church. It becomes a more technical theological term by the late se- by 1794. But in the early church, it's usually broken down the period from 100 to 150 is the age of the apostolic fathers, that is, those who were discipled by the apostles. The next period from 150 to 300 is called the age of the apologist because by that time you have... Um, uh, Christianity penetrating into the uh, areas of Rome and Greece where where your educated elites are taking offense at it. So apologetics, as I said, if you're going to give an answer, it involves communication. Now I've created two or three slides here to talk and try to illustrate the basic problem here. And we'll probably stop with these four slides tonight. So you're going to be a Christian missionary. You are going to go to some culture with new tribes missions that has never, ever even seen somebody from outside of their aboriginal environment, much less seen a Bible or seen a white person. Let's start there. Seen a white person, uh, heard of anybody living beyond maybe 25 miles from where they were born, and Uh, you are going to communicate the gospel to them, and you are fired up and excited to do that. So you're the Christian missionary, and you have to go communicate the gospel to these pagan aborigines. So how are you going to do that? The first question is, what is your common ground with these pagan aboriginals? What are you going to do? How are you going to begin to, to find some area where you can communicate uh, to them. Is it going to be language? Is that the area of common ground? Well, you don't have a clue what they speak. Uh, is it the culture? Well, you live in a totally different culture than the kind of culture they live in. So how are you going to relate to them? Is it religion? Well, they're polytheists. You're a theist. What do they even mean by the word God? And when they hear you say the word God, what do what do they mean once you learn whatever their word for God is? Or truth. Maybe they're totally relativistic. Maybe they're like the Sowie people. You remember Don Richardson was with New Tribes Missions, and he went into Papua New Guinea back in the 60s, and he is communicating to this tribe and trying to explain the gospel, the story of Jesus to them. And they had such a perverted sense of right and wrong that the greatest value in their culture was to deceive someone to the point where it would cost them their life. That you, you were you were a, an important person. 
you had really arrived if you could betray somebody so that they died. That was the ultimate value. So when he told the story, Judas came out the hero. How in the world do you communicate the gospel to people who have such a perverted view? But see, that's what we have to do. Give an answer. You're not giving an answer if you don't understand what what they're hearing when you say things. Are values or reason going to be the common ground? Or experience. So what does a missionary need to do to communicate with the aborigine? Well, he has to learn the language, doesn't he? And when you learn a language, those who are bilingual will tell you that that cultural values are embedded within, are encoded within that other language. So that if you are talking Spanish or Italian or Arabic, the language that you use also relates to the cultural values of those people. Um, <clears throat> so when you talk about culture, you have to learn their culture, what their values are. This takes a lot of time. Uh, what their religion is, how that impacts things. If you, it's a spiritist culture, then everything is alive. Everything has its own spirit. So when you start talking about one God, this just doesn't even compute. You might as well be speaking uh, some other foreign language. Uh, When it talks about truth and values and reason, all of these are are going to be greatly distorted. It takes a lot of time to learn how to properly communicate truth, doctrine, to... um, to an audience like that, because they're not hearing this, what you're intending to, uh, to communicate. So this is part of apologetics. Do they mean, when you're talking to somebody, do they mean the same thing when you use the word God or truth, or when you talk about life or creation, right and wrong? Are these the same? Now, notice we change the slide. We went from pagan aborigines operating on human viewpoint on the right. You're on the talking on the basis of divine viewpoint. And now, all of a sudden, these pagan aborigines are your postmodern sister or your postmodern friend or your postmodern co-worker operating and living totally within their human viewpoint structure, speaking a language that doesn't mean the same thing your language means. So how are we going to give an answer to them without sacrificing our assumptions? How are we going to talk to them in a way that they can understand these these terms? That's the process of giving an answer. We have to make sure that we are uh, properly communicating when we talk about these key ideas uh, in the Scripture. So... I lost part of that slide. Let me fix this just a minute. There. So, genuine communication involves making clear what one person thinks to another person. If you haven't made it clear, you're not communicating. Secondly, as such, the person who is communicating from a divine viewpoint framework should make sure that in his communication of his uh, culture's beliefs that he does not compromise his own divine viewpoint standards in the process. And a right thing done in a wrong way will do exactly that. You're giving a, a away the, the farm in order to 
um, win a small part of the argument. So in a more technical sense, giving an answer assumes giving an understandable explanation that communicates truly to the person who comes from a different framework. And so we're going to stop there. I'd encourage you, if you're interested in getting into this in a lot more depth than what I'm going to do, uh, to read those uh, uh, those two papers I posted by Charlie. There's so much more to this. This is I was so very interested in this when I was much younger. One of the reasons I went on to pursue a second master's degree in philosophy is to understand uh, our, our own culture better, uh, to be able to communicate to it. Um, and more of these issues because a lot of apologetics is uh, related to uh, to thought, to reason, to logic, to philosophy, to metaphysics and epistemology. And what are these issues? Let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this opportunity to study these things and begin to think through what it means to helpfully, accurately communicate and give an answer for our faith that communicates to the person to whom we are speaking how to ask the right questions, how to uh, know what questions to answer that are asked of us and what questions to ignore, Uh, the wisdom that comes only from spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and talking to people about the Lord. Pray that you'd give us a real desire to communicate the gospel to others and to grow and learn and develop this skill set. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.